this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 332. We're recording on Thursday, September 26, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you for bookriot.com. Now that we're doing two episodes a week, it feels like we're doing a lot of these. Like yeah. It feels like more than two, twice as many. I like it, but it does feel like we're always recording a podcast <laughs> or getting ready to record, well, talking about a podcast or right. doing ads or something else. Right, plus we record annotated together, plus we yes. talk for other things most days of the week, so it really does, it really does yeah. feel like we Maybe are. Maybe we should just be recording everything time. and we just cut it into episodes. Just whatever. <laughs> just Here's 60 minutes of, <laughs> and it doesn't have to end at a particular place. It just sort of... Uh, you're getting a yeah, it's like um, security cam footage at a Seven Eleven. You don't know what you're going to get. Sometimes the tangents are really far afield and yes. probably relatively entertaining. Um, Maybe not even tangents at that point, right? They yes. don't actually touch the circle. That's there. true. Sometimes some, we some jump other to geom- like a, yeah, we just jump to a right. completely unrelated mm. subject, but we have fun. And I think people yeah, there's who a lot listen of to follow- podcasts care about that. Another thing that's happening, since we're generating so many more mm. podcasts now, I mean, it's just double, we're getting a lot more feedback, um, which is great. Thank you for, so much for the feedback. We're going to do some follow-up. Um, first one, I guess this is the, the, the feedback I've been most glad to see of late. Um, when we were talking about, I don't remember what this was. Oh, that Canadian program. Oh, that was yeah. giving away mm-hmm. books um, by Indigenous authors especially. Um, I think I said, no, I know I said something effective. This one has accessibility built into it, audio and Braille, in a way that even something that's great like the Imaginary Library doesn't. I was wrong. There is audio and Braille available through Dolly Parton's Imaginary Library program. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, you can see there. Thank you so much for, um, I, can't, I didn't put in the listener's name, but thank you so much for giving us that. That's a mistake I'm glad to have been wrong mm-hmm. um, about. Another one that's a little bit of a deep cut, even though it's like, it's only from earlier September, but it feels like it's been a million years ago. Uh, We were talking about the French army using sci-fi writers to imagine terrorism threats. Um, And Erskine wrote in to say, well, there was a group of sci-fi writers named, who named themselves meaningfully Sigma and did work for the Department of Homeland Security, including horrible ways to keep poor people from hospitals. Awesome. Uh, Made me take some books off my list off my TBR based on some of the stories and the people that were involved in there. I've got links in the show notes there if people want to find out more about that. Um, yeah. So including um, sp- intentional spreading of rumors about organ harvesting in ERs to keep people, poor people away from ERs, Whoa. which is... I don't use the word dastardly unironically that often, but that is dastardly, which is it, such a great word. Truly. Um, but that is a dastardly plan. That's just straight up evil. No, I don't like it. I guess dastardly is more like comically evil. It's come to mean mm. comically evil. I think of it or more like, like cleverly, cleverly evil. Yeah, yes. yeah, but I think this is just straight up evil. Yeah, is it? I guess it's very clever and very evil. Um, sure. So, all right. So the next one's going to be a little bit longer, so let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by The Safe Keep by Yell Vanderwalden. This new debut is an exhilarating, twisting tale of desire, suspicion, and obsession between two women staying in the same house in the Dutch countryside during the summer of 1961. It's a powerful exploration of the legacy of World War II and the darker parts of our collective past. It's mysterious, sophisticated, sensual, and infused with intrigue, atmosphere, and sex. The Safe Keep is a brilliantly plotted and provocative debut novel you won't soon forget. Also... It's literary enough if you like literary fiction while still being spicy enough for certain corners of book talk. You know the corners I'm talking about. And while at first there's a cool detachment to these characters and this story, the heat builds and builds until it explodes into a tale of twisted desires, histories, and homes, and the unexpected shape of revenge. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to The Safe Keep by Yale Vanderwalden for sponsoring this episode. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Barnes and Noble Book Club. Um, first person we've had write in that's been to a couple, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it gets a little long. The long story short is that she likes her selection and she's been to a couple uh, August, September of this year. The host had the host of the book club at Barnes and Noble had not read the book, mm. which on first pass, you're like, that seems bad. But then she talked to the host and said, well, we have to do the hosting, but they're not paying us to read the book. And as we know, it costs a lot of time to read the book. So there you go. I can see the host's point of view. I can also see Barnes & Noble's point of view. You're going to pay someone 10 hours to read the It just feels like there's a problem here. And this is something we encounter in our own work, we should say. Right, mm-hmm. Rebecca? Like, we did the testaments. We were reading kind of on our own time, but also not, we don't really account for our time reading yeah, if, um, for stuff we do here. So I can see the problem here. I can see it. I, I don't know that there's a solution, but I thought it was interesting to pass that along. Yeah, that is interesting. I can say from my own experience, which is now more than a decade old, um, but when I worked at Barnes & Noble as a community relations manager, I was tasked with like running some book clubs. This was during the twilight years, and so I had to run a book club for, like, I think for Eclipse and um, hmm. whatever the last one was, Breaking Dawn. And I, I had to like be able to facilitate a discussion with a bunch of teenagers about it. And so I also read those books on my own time. Like This is kind of just one of those um, mm. unspoken practices, I think that's in, probably industry-wide. Like Most folks who work in publishing have to read a lot for their jobs, um, but very few of them are sitting at their desks between nine and five doing that using up Wednesday afternoons. (laughs) Right. Doing that reading. Like we, um, a lot of us, like any of us on our staff who host shows that include book recommendations or like what we're doing with the book club club or reading, um, for the book nerd movie hour, we have at least a lot of flexibility built into our working life. Or like when I was trying to finish the testaments, I took a Wednesday morning to like sit down and try to finish it. Um, and I can modify my working life in that way. But if you're stuck in an office nine to five, or if you're working retail hours, you don't have that flexibility to balance and the pay for the reading time is just not something that people do. Um, I completely agree that it, like, especially if we're talking about a retail situation that should be accounted for, or they could maybe modify the expectations that like the book club person is just there to sort of facilitate, Mm -hmm. um, there, there's usually like discussion guides provided for things. So if you're just being yeah. a host and you don't have to be an informed participant in the discussion, I think that's one thing and they could set that expectation. Um, but to be expected to have read the book and contribute to the discussion and to have to do it all like out of the goodness of your heart, I also would probably choose not to read mm. most of them. No, I would so, too. Yeah. It's just, I think in, I don't think books are unique in this regard. Like, um, you know, I follow sports, I follow movies. You're, people who are covering the NFL, they're not billing for their time watching the NFL. They're doing the job they're doing because they like the NFL. Oh, yeah. And it's part of, like, basically I'm leveraging what I... the re, I'm re, reapportioning the reading I, reading time I'd be doing just because mm-hmm. to do for work, to do yeah. stuff for work. And, like, that's just... I don't know, books especially, because books are especially... 
problematic in this regard because it takes a long time. You know, it takes a long time to read the Testaments. It's not even a movie. You can sit down and bang out even a long one in three hours and write a review or do whatever. It's just independent booksellers. They don't get paid by their bookstores to read the books and do that they, they can then recommend. Um, you know, places that pay per piece for reviews aren't paying them the 12 hours it takes to read the book and write the reviews. It's just there's a lot of shadow Mm-hmm. work that goes into covering culture, I would yeah. say, just writ large, that is just part of the deal. Now, if you're Barnes & Noble and this is a product, do you want to take that time to invest to make sure your hosts have read the books or not? Um, that's a separate question, but I thought it was interesting to think Yeah, about, I think you know. it's just nice to bring that out into the light. And I think you're right that this applies to jobs where you're covering any kind of media or any mm-hmm. any of these jobs where like the thing that you're covering also overlaps with a personal interest or a passion one of my brother-in-law is um a sports radio broadcaster mm-hmm. hosts a show out of Columbus Ohio and like there are two TVs in their living room because one has whatever the family is watching and the one next to it has a bunch of different mm-hmm. sports things on mute <laughs> like so that he can <laughs> perpetually be aware of what's happening in the game or who's winning Winning the golf tournament or, you know, any of those things, because that sort of swimming in that water ambient awareness of what's happening in the world of sports is essential for him to be able to do the work that he does when he walks into the studio. Um, And it's just kind of one of those things that the industries thrive on. I think shadow work is a great way to put it that like, like it's probably, it's 100% fair to say like that book riot wouldn't exist if we all got, like we could not exist and be financially sustainable if everyone had Mm -hmm. to be paid for all of the hours that they spent reading. Um, And the, so the principles there versus like what's, you know, actually doable are very interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, um, books, like I said, they, they do take so long that a, one way of thinking about it is like you're going to be reading anyway for fun. If you just redirect into something, you can turn into work. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's available too. It does, you know, it's 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 tough. It's I don't know how. Like in a world in which you paid people for their reading time, I don't know what kind of books coverage you would have anywhere. I, I really don't. Oh um, yeah, like the, I have the no idea what you would do. Write reviews for the New York Times and the Washington Post and all of those other publications that are known yeah. for literary coverage are also not getting paid for the hours that no. they spend reading. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's review outlets that pay like forty or fifty bucks per review. You know that they're, mm-hmm. you're getting paid for the writing time, not the reading right. time. If you don't want to do the reading, don't do the writing. Um, but it does seem like this is a different. It seems like a, it felt a little bit different that related to this kind of thing where they're employees and they're expected to show up and facilitate mm-hmm. a book discussion and they haven't read the book. Is that a cost Barnes & Noble maybe should be willing to pay to have the book clubs themselves be a better experience? Or can you, fake it is the wrong word, but can you facilitate, to use your word, the discussion without yeah. having read the book and people still have a good experience? Um, this this the, our listener said it was frustrating because there's themes and you can't at some point if you don't know if, if the people you're facilitating know the book and start going off in ways that you can't negotiate right. or understand <laughs> I, it becomes yeah. very difficult then sure to, especially if things get controversial yeah yeah right so interesting um last week for our regular episode i said we would do some follow up on bookshop.org and let you talk about or see what you thought and then I think we got blown away by thinking about testament sales or something else. Like, I don't know. It got, <laughs> it, it got nuked it. and paved. So actual follow-up this time on bookshop.org with some actual additional information, um, both from a listener with this, you know, some feedback. But then we did talk to bookshop.org. Um, we got some notes from them based on what we had said on the show. Let me start there. Um, discounting. We were wondering about the discounting, Jen and I, because it said 8%. It gave us this hypothetical $16 paperback and broke down the pie chart based on that. And in that pie chart, there was an 8% discount. And so is that for all books? Is that for hardcover books? Blah, blah, blah. And they said for books priced at $16 and under, it's 8% off. Mm-hmm. And 10% off for books priced over $16, which seems like a distinction that's not a difference to mm-hmm. me. Um I don't know. Boy, it seems like it'd be nice if it was just 10% off for everything, but maybe that extra 2% on the $16 thing is $0.32. Cents. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, what's, I'm not sure what to, to make of that, except that there is discounts above and beyond that. And also shipping we wondered about, or I think I later wondered about shipping because we didn't talk about it then. 
there's shipping f- that is free on sales over $45. I guess c- purchases, you know, three books or however many, however, however many items it takes you to get over $45, you get free shipping. They'll be delivered to customers within two to three days. I think that's feature parity pretty close to like Barnes & Noble. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that seems right. In the in our staff Slack, um, I think Jen and I were going back and forth is too strong, but discussing if you're competing with Amazon, is that competing with Amazon? Like, are you close enough that someone will be like, okay, that's basically, you know, it, it takes care of my shipping concern. And I was saying, well, I, I think... The thing about Amazon especially is you don't pay shipping if you're a Prime member on anything, or at least most things that are Prime eligible, um, and they get there shockingly fast now. Like, I ordered something this morning for the house on mm-hmm. Amazon. It's coming tonight, which yeah. we can talk about the environmental impacts and other things about that, but just in terms of feature parity, it's kind of incredible. And that six, I looked this up, 62% of Amazon customers are Prime members, so you, have to, you don't have to monkey around with min, meeting a, a minimum. And so I'm guessing is like it kind of looks like feature parity on its surface, but I wonder if it does what it needs to do to look like feature parity. I thought I'd get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this more this week, and I'm not sure that the feature parity is actually as necessary as I would have said it was if I were like sitting down to Mm. try to design something to compete with Amazon. And that's because like a lot of this is driven by anecdata, but it's starting to feel like there's just a shift in cultural consciousness away from, mm-hmm. um, away from sort of blanket acceptance or support or enjoyment of Amazon or people starting to like think more closely about Amazon and about what it is to be a shopper from Amazon, sort of what you might be contributing to by doing that. Like I went to get my hair done this week and my hairstylist was telling me that she loves audiobooks and she's been using audible forever and didn't like one of the alternatives that she explored. And I was like, well, Hey, guess what? Like she didn't like the one from her library. I was like, there's Libro FM and it actually has like the same feature set and similar pricing and all of the purchases support independent bookstores. And like, that's a very good that's a very good competitor because the feature set is almost Mm -hmm. identical, if not identical to audible. But I think that for bookshop, like if the tide continues to turn away from Amazon, that consumers might be willing to pay a little bit more for books than they would from Amazon and to wait longer for them than they would from Mm -hmm. Amazon for the benefit of knowing that they weren't giving their money to Amazon. Um, kind of the, you know, kind of the same, like for the ethical moral satisfaction of it. I guess that's the question it comes down to is what is the tax? What's the morality tax mm-hmm. people are willing to pay both in terms of convenience and just straight up dollars? Because right. on a $28 hardcover that Amazon's giving you a 48, a 40% break on, that's you know eight or nine bucks mm-hmm. difference than what you're getting here. Is, well, are people going to pay that morality tax? I'd be I, well. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, but I think it'll be. It feels like it's, it needs to be closer to me. But maybe I'm. I'd love to well, be wrong. It's also because it'd be more, more interesting if I'm wrong. I think it's mo- it's more of a discount than most independent bookstores offer on most of their books. For well, sure. that's true. And that's so, like, true. if you walk into like your random independent bookstore. There's not going to be an 8% discount off the cover price of everything that's $16 and under mm-hmm. or 10% off the books that are priced 16 and over. Like they might have some discounts on like say some of their best sellers, but in most cases in most independent bookstores that I have been into, you're paying full list price mm-hmm. for the book because the full list price is what the bookstore needs to sell you the book for in order to make any margin really and keep their lights on and stay open. Um, so people pay that full price because they like supporting independent bookstores and they have the disposable income to do it and to put their money where their mouth is in that way. Like that, that's the morality tax is that your new hardcover is actually $29 instead yeah. of what, whatever Amazon could get it to you for. And like, this is at least a discount. So I think it has in that way, a slightly better chance of succeeding in, in drawing customers away from Amazon than a standalone independent bookstore would. And it solves the problem of how do you get books in a way that supports independent bookstores if you don't live near one or have access to like one that you like that already has good e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess that goes to the next bit of follow-up, which is from uh, Nicola, who said, you know, personal note, she does, she's one of these people doesn't have a local indie, um, sometimes shops at New Year Travel, but 
The another thing that stops them from shopping online is it's already full price price from an indie. Plus, you've got to pay California. She lives in California. She's got to pay California tax and postage and not a specific independent because they're not in my community. So there's compounding factors there. If you're paying 30% more for a hardcover on um, bookshop.org than you are on Amazon, you're also paying tax on that 30% more in most states, right? Because Amazon now collects sales tax and places collect sales tax. So there's compounding problems there and the postage. So the postage um, here where you get $45, get to $45, you get free shipping is an improvement over what you're getting from a independent store, generally speaking, mm-hmm. I think, I guess we've talked about this before. It connects to this one. I think it's actually tangential to another through line we've talked about before is where, how many independent bookstores there are in the country and where they are matters when you're trying to get a groundswell of people to care about their local bookstore enough to switch how they're buying their books. Right. Mm-hmm. You have, are these people that don't have an indie like Nicola, Nicola, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say your names. Nicola, um, actually. Nicola, are there people that are don't have, they, they don't have an affiliation that's going to switch to Bookshop? They're going to pay more at bookshop.org for morality reasons that's not connected to a specific bookstore. Because there aren't that many independent bookstores. There just aren't, relatively speaking. There's a lot of places, big swaths of the, of the country, both geographically and population-wise, that really effectively don't have an indie. Are any of those people viable targets for this. That, that, that's really not for something. They're not for a particular independent bookstore. That's more against Amazon. Right. And so for, for that to happen, your sense of, and I, I think I share it, the tide turning against Amazon to some degree, will have to be more than just a change to neutral. It'll have to be actively disliking, like yeah. actively looking for ways and that aren't it, not just I'm getting two good options, I'll pick one A right. versus B. Yeah, and I think it will, like that also assumes that people who, don't want to support Amazon anymore or like unaware that Barnes and Noble is a thing. <laughs> right. Like, yes. It yeah, has yeah, to yeah. be, it's, I think there's, you know, the necessary condition is wanting something that's other than Amazon. Um, but that's not sufficient unto itself to make, to get someone to make the switch to bookshop. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's like, investment money set aside for bookshop for like SEO work Mm. or um, publicity campaigns that really explain to consumers like what you what's ideal would be that if somebody sat down to Google like best alternative to Amazon for books or you know whatever that bookshop.org would come up and you could make that happen with good SEO over time um, and you could do some publicity work around educating people who care about books that bookshop.org is a thing and even if it costs you more than Amazon here is what you get for that extra money that you're paying Um, like here's what you're supporting by paying extra money rather than getting the discount prices from Amazon but it's it's definitely not a straight line from the tide turning against Amazon to bookshop.org being successful in yeah. getting those customers. You know, um, Amanda was saying in our, in our staff Slack, I think it was Amanda, I'm sorry if it wasn't you, Amanda, that it's, it's kind of a confusing message to say, be sure you shop local through these giant digital platforms like Libro FM, or it, it is a, it does confuse the message to some degree that, you're going to shop local by paying this middleman right. <laughs> who is in the cloud. Like, where is it? Like, it's sort of out there. I think that's also an interesting way of thinking about it as well. And it does. I've thought about. I've, I've probably said this before on the show. The thing I think about sometimes, if you want to support books and reading in your local community, it feels sometimes like isn't the smart thing to if you're and you're going to be buying books mm-hmm. to buy books from the Amazon from Amazon and then donate to your local library system the difference in retail price. I mean, it's, it's, we're really talking about a morality tax, like in apportioning our book dollars. We don't talk about that very often. Like, is supporting your independent bookstore the best use of those marginal dollars? I don't know. But I think independent bookstores have done a great job, as we talked about in the annotated episode, of making the case that it is. That is a good use of your marginal book dollars to pump it into your independent bookstore. They don't say you could pump it into your library. I mean, yeah, I mean for, I for it, rightly so, but yeah. it's just interesting that the independent bookstore has become a proxy for literacy in my community, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, and I think that part of that too is that it's so caught up in the 
anti-Amazon campaign. Yes. You know, that right. independent bookstores say independent bookstores are good on their own. They are valuable just for their own existence and what they do in the community. But also... Amazon is bad. And if mm-hmm. you don't like Amazon, give your dollars to independent bookstores. And that's functionally a vote against Amazon. And giving your dollars right. to your library is sort of, it's neutral there. Like you didn't, you, you have taken all of your money out of, um, really out of the economy, like your local economy, and put it into a social service. So I, I think it's mm-hmm. just, that would come down to like personal value. Like it might be the most logical thing to take your book buying dollars and donate them all to the library system and then get every book you read from the library so that you have as many dollars yeah. as possible to continue donating rather than spending. But mm-hmm. the like most efficient use of dollars is not the only factor that humans consider when we're deciding no. what to do. Well, with it, effic- it only matters efficient if it's getting the thing you want done, done, right? right. Like, if your goal is to combat Amazon and support independent bookstores, donating to the library doesn't help you do that. Now, if you expand your goal, which is to vouchsafe literacy and reading culture, then you, you, get, you open up a can of worms about what that means, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that independent bookstores have become a proxy for that idea has been one of the great successes of independent bookstores in the ABA over the last 10 years. Oh, for sure. um, It could be true, may not be true, but it's certainly become a proxy for, Mm -hmm. you know, fight the man, shop at your local independent bookstore. Um, Let's talk about libraries in just a second because there's, my local is getting into the fray. Oh. But let's do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half-Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow in the Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half-Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled Alasmael. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the hammams, secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at IndiePubs.com slash products slash Salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael for sponsoring this episode. Okay. We've talked about this story before in a variety of forms, and there's been some additional movement about Macmillan, I'm going to use the word throttling, um, okay. and I'll explain why in a minute. Throttling access um, that libraries have for ebooks and audiobooks in their various platforms, whether it's Libby or I can't, uh, Hoopla or whatever else it might be. Um, I got an email yesterday from the Multnomah County Library that is asking library patrons, of which I am a heavy, my family's <laughs> a heavy user of the library, to sign a petition. Um, basically expressing displeasure that Macmillan's new uh, uh, with Macmillan's new 
eight-week embargo on new eBooks. Basically, for the first eight weeks after a book is released, all libraries will only be able to purchase a single copy of new Macmillan eBooks. I'm reading directly from the email, which I put into a Google Doc, which I can look, link to in the show notes. You can see, basically saying, we, we don't like this. As librarians, um, the average hold time for a title is just over one month. Now the wait time for some titles will be up to four months or more. Macmillan says that libraries undercut their profits by allowing readers free access to materials that they would otherwise purchase. This is simply not true. Uh, well, let's come back to that in a minute. In fact, libraries often pay four <laughs> times the amount for ebooks as consumers do. Ba 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 ba. I guess that's really yeah. That's I actually doubled. I, I pasted into twice, so it re- returns there. So Macmillan is doing this thing. We've talked about in various situations before, but this is pretty clearly put out. An eight-week embargo on new ebooks, except for one. You have a purchase a single copy of McNew Macmillan ebooks. Then after that. I think they can purchase as normally as, as the status quo is before this, before November 1st when this goes into effect. I think this whole thing is a fascinating discussion. I'm not sure exactly where I come down on it because I'll tell you why in just a minute. Um, but that it's a big enough deal that my library system is sending out an e-blast to all library patrons to get them to sign a petition about ebook lending licenses, I just think is a fascinating development yeah, in where we are right that's now. That's what I was thinking about this too, because this isn't the first time that a publisher has made this policy switch. We've talked about this a few times in the last couple of years, but it's the first time that libraries have gotten mad enough about it to involve mm-hmm. their patrons in it, at least to my awareness. If you're listening to this and you're like, no, my library has been talking to me about this forever, please do let us know. Um, podcast at bookriot.com. But that's, I think that's the most interesting part of it to me is that the libraries are enlisting their communities um, in this fight and attempting to explain to their communities, to their patrons, why they should care. Like the average hold time totally or currently is just over one month, but now the wait time will be up to four months more and that's because you might have to wait mm-hmm. like you the library will have to wait before you gotta wait get to wait you, right. yeah, exactly right. like yeah. you're in line to get in line, in line. it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that more people will be trying to put the book on hold it just means that the day the first person gets it is mm-hmm. going to be later than the day the first person would get it currently i still don't know if i think this is actually a big deal i'm not sure either i mean it's certainly a change and we know this thing about human psychology is that taking away something feels worse than giving the same person. Mm-hmm. So that it's a change from the status quo that feels like, well, it is restricting, you know, it is more restrictive than before. Whether or not it will matter or does matter or how it will matter, I think is very much up in the air because I think we can take Macmillan at its word that it believes that having so many of its new releases, so many copies of its new releases available to borrow in libraries digitally hurt sales, right? They believe that, that their revenue isn't what it would be. It it will be more after November 1st than before it. I think we should take them at their word for that um, for the moment, even as just a thought experiment. Because if that's true, then I think you have to look at it, or I tend to look at it more holistically. Well, if that's true, then what are we trying to accomplish here? Because the library is an unusual institution in American life for a variety of reasons that are mostly good. But I can imagine as a publisher, you've got a giant network of free government-supported institutions that provide your products at a massive discount to a lot of people. And how that affects, it has to affect your bottom line somehow. Librarians seem to argue that net-net it's at least neutral because then people recommend it to other people and they go buy it. And here's the, th- here's the problem. We don't know anything about this. We don't know anything about how library availability affects sales. I think that's fair, right, Rebecca? Yeah, Do we I know think, anything at all? I think it's true that we don't know anything at all. I think yeah. that there are parties that think they know something and that that's on both yes. sides of the line, that Macmillan thinks they know that um, allowing ebook distribution to libraries at the same time that a book is published cannibalizes sales. We also believe that librarians, or we also know librarians think they know that mm-hmm. library patronage actually supports book sales. Um, both, I've seen data from both sides that's usually 
collected, analyzed, and presented by someone from that side of the argument. And this particular thing that they reference about um, Macmillan saying that libraries undercut their profits, this is simply not true. Um, I've seen also some pieces, I believe, in like Publishers Weekly and Shelf mm-hmm. Awareness arguing that like the place those numbers came from was where it was influenced by you know somebody else who had a particular agenda. Yes, it's all motivated reasoning this. here. Right. It's, like all, a whole bunch of right. it's all motivated reasoning all the way around. Everybody on both sides thinks that they know how it's going. And like we don't know how it's going. I don't actually mm-hmm. think that we have a good answer on this. Like to get a good answer on it would require, I think, deep dives into data sets that publishers are not typically willing to share um, or have not been willing to share like openly historically um, from by a third party that is disinterested in right in the outcome here like like some economist needs to decide that they wonder about this and then Mm -hmm. like get access to library data and get access to publisher data and look at what happens when publishers make these changes about distribution and figure out like something about sales patterns but i don't think we actually know like Mm -hmm. i think that what librarians are trying to achieve is having their patrons have access to all the same materials for free on release date that somebody who can afford to or chooses to pay for the material gets on release date. And functionally that they don't think it's fair that the ability to pay for a thing should get you the access on release date while someone who can't or chooses not to pay for it should have to wait. Um, Mm. I don't know where I fall on that. There are a lot of places yeah. in publics, like in you know, public and social services, that if you take a free or discounted approach, that means having to to wait or to take a different quality. Yeah, you pay of with convenience and time, basically. Right, and yeah. like the you know the socialist in my heart is like, well, everyone should have everything (laughs) on the same day for the same price. But that's not the the society that we live in, and I don't Mm. think from that angle that Macmillan is doing something wrong. Um, and, yeah. and that libraries are attempting to argue like the ethics of it. Um, libraries have attempted to argue the ethics of it, I think pretty unsuccessfully. And it's interesting to see them taking this tack then of like, well, if the ethical argument didn't work, maybe we can get our patrons fired up enough about how it will affect them that yeah. they'll get angry and just make enough, like what a, you know, what a petition does is make enough noise to be annoying to whoever is on the receiving end of the petition that they decide changing the thing is less trouble than continuing to listen to the people who are upset. Yeah. I mean, the the Multnomah County Library System here, and it's actually signed by one of the directors. I don't have the name in front of me, so I thought I'd put that out loud. Said so this this key part is like I would argue differently than they're arguing here, which is McMillan says that libraries undercut their profits by allowing readers free access to materials they would otherwise purchase. This is simply not true. Without data, I don't know that I can believe that because otherwise McMillan is just doing this and they're dumb and this is just painful for them because like John Sargent, the CEO of McMillan's, had to d- deny this. This cannot be easy for McMillan. I, I, have to, I think you're right. We have to at least, at least believe they think that there's a, net, a, a significant upside for their bottom line to do this because, in fact, libraries often pay four times the amount of books that consumers do, but that book could be read by 40 people. So they're losing 10, theoretically losing 10 times the sales. I don't know. I think the argument I'm more amenable to than they shouldn't make as much money and it's not true that actually it's a net win for them is part of the deal about being a publisher in America is making your books available to libraries. Mm-hmm. I think that's the warrant to a lot of these sorts of arguments. Like this is this is our social contract for being in America and being a publisher and making books is that you make your books available to libraries at a reasonable way and that this is unreasonable. Yeah. And I think that that goes to a theme we've come back to over and over here is that publishing is a business, but it likes to dress itself up as a public service. And Mm -hmm. because it doesn't outright acknowledge the fact most of the time that publishing is about 
commerce. Um, the, it, you're in, you get in these tangly situations where publishers, I think publishers do, for the most part, have good intentions. They care about books. Yeah. They want people to read good books. They believe that it's important to get ideas out into the world, and they want to also support libraries. Like the people who work in publishers hold those ideas. The publishing company itself is a business that has to make business decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where this, like, that's one of the places that this conflict comes up. That's also tied to um, something that we're going to get to later in the show, I think, about yeah. what publishers do or don't owe to their readers and what publishers, mm-hmm. um, how they present themselves as public services versus what seems to actually happen. Yeah. And I guess the, the, the analog, or not analog, the, the example I'm using, I was in the library the other day and I was thinking about this and I was looking at the movie shelves. So you, could, you know, my local library, there's movies and other things you can rent. No one asked that you can check out um, Avengers Endgame on the same day it's released in theaters. Right. No one asked that, which I think is interesting, right? Because we also know about the sales curve of most books is it's very front-loaded. Like a lot of the revenue a book is going to generate happens pretty quick mm-hmm. for most books after its publication. So this four-week or, excuse me, 12-week window, Macmillan is still going to let the ebooks be available in the long term to people who want to read it, but they're trying to capture as much of that fat head of the curve value right away, which I can sort of understand. Like that seems to me, maybe if we had started the library system from scratch and said, you know what, you're going to be able to get any book you want, but it's 12 weeks. It's going to be like a theatrical release where there's a window in which the publisher doesn't have to make it available to libraries. But then after that, you can go get it from your library would we be mad about that if we didn't already have the system where day and date you could get whatever from your library? It seems to me we might find that reasonable as a trade for convenience, access, and price. Yeah, especially given that the external principle and precedent exists in movies um, right. that you can't get access to the new thing for free on the same day. Um, it seems to me that if we weren't just used to this system of a book comes out and is immediately available at the library for free, we wouldn't expect it. And it's the, as right. you, as you said, like it just hurts more to have something taken away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that, this, that may be the direction that publishers feel they need to go. Yeah, and right. I don't envy libraries then being in the position of having to explain it to their patrons. No, I don't either. I don't either. Now, if Macmillan said, you know what? We've decided that none of our books are going to be available in the in the library system. I feel like my my eth- or whatever my civic line of responsibility uh-huh. is crossed in that situation because yes, I think yeah. I do feel like it's table stakes for being a book producer in America that you should make your stuff available in a sustainable way for you and the library on an ongoing basis. Now that might get us back to some questions about Audible's original, and I got pissed off about something <laughs> that wasn't available in my local library that's an Audible original separate situation, but related in this way, which I would be okay if Audible said, you know, this Audible original recording, it's going to be only on Audible for 12 weeks, but after that you get to the library. I'd be like, you know what? That seems like a reasonable trade. You're protecting your business. You're getting as much value you can. The people who are really hot and bothered and can afford it can get it there, but the rest of us schmoes who either don't want to pay or don't mind doing it or can have time to wait, get it later so you can have the business and the socialist thing at the same mm-hmm. time. Like It actually feels like kind of a nice dovetailing of capitalism and socialism to say, here's the part that's cordoned off to let the business do business things. Since we live in a capitalist society, we're not going to win this battle here, but also do the things we like about libraries. Yeah. Maybe it makes more sense. I don't know. I'm conflicted. Um, I have to say too, but here's another thing. I feel like the wait times for my eBooks and audiobooks, even for things that have been out years is skyrocketing. I don't know what's happening. Hmm. Yeah. I was looking for, um, Oh, what was it? I don't know, something that's been out for like 10 years, an ebook. And my whole time was like 16 weeks. Was, was it like, because wow. your library had like one copy of it? Yeah, well, I'm using Libby and it's a Multnomah system and it's a little confusing because the individual licenses is not related to Libby. That's just the, the, the front end that you mm-hmm. use. So I'm not sure, but I don't know if more people are using it. There's fewer things. People are taking longer with it. I think there's another situation too that I, I've been guilty of, which if I'm done with an audiobook or an ebook, I'll forget to return it, oh. even though it's just a button, because there's no like, it's not sitting around, it's just on my shelf. So even if I read something in four days, I'll keep it for the full 21 because I've just forgotten to press the button to send it back. So I don't know, but I guess I've now come to the point with my own library usage that I'm not looking about timeliness at all when it comes to my library usage. Hmm. Like, That's I'm expecting to put stuff on holds and it comes in when it comes in. Mm-hmm. So, Maybe, 
I don't know if that's something the libraries are worried about, that the horse is already out of the barn about that, or there's no horse in this barn to worry about getting out because people are used to waiting for these new digital lending systems. So that's anecdata that I, hmm. I guess I felt like I needed to, to pass along. Got a little there. spicy there. Yeah, I got a little spicy. Okay, let's do a spicer break. Uh, that's kind of follow-up, kind of new news, but let's get into new news after a, a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Hachette Audio. Three years ago, sports agent Myron Balatar gave a eulogy at the funeral of his client, renowned basketball coach Greg Downing. So why, you may ask, is Greg now being placed at the scene of a double, not a singular, but a double homicide? I also wonder. So Greg Downing, who Myron gave a eulogy for, is a suspect and Myron needs some answers. So Myron and Wynn, longtime friends and colleagues, set out to find the truth, but the more they discover about Greg, the more dangerous their world becomes. Secrets, lies, and a murderous conspiracy that stretches back into the past churn at the heart of Harlan Coben's blistering new novel, Think Twice. And the audiobook is narrated by his longtime narrator, Steve Weber. Now, if you don't know about Steve, Steve gives each character distinct voices and accents, making this a more immersive listen. Make sure to check out Think Twice by Harlan Coben. And thanks again to Hachette Audio for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Here. Okay. Where do you want to go? Where do I want to go? Let's talk something about or this. nothing. You want to do something or nothing? Yeah. Or no? Let's. Yeah. Let's do something or nothing. I think it's interesting. So I thought this was big news, and Rebecca says maybe not big news. So we're going to play something or nothing, where <laughs> Oprah's book club is moving to Apple TV Plus starting in November, and there's going. To, the first pick is The Water Dancer by Taniasi Coates. Big hit for my um, cell on. Uh, on the water dancer in our fall book preview. I couldn't have known that Oprah was coming back in quite this way. Um, there's going to be, there's going to be a new pick every two months and there's going to be, you know, a big interview, highly produced stage interview with the author of that book that will be available on Apple TV plus. Um, there's going to be some features within the Apple books that go along with it, a time tracker and some other things that you can order it there. I thought it was kind of a big deal just because Oprah's Book Club is back, and Oprah's Book Club is sort of the greatest force we've ever seen on the history of the planet in our knowledge um, to move books, even though its its impact has been attenuated of late, just I think because it's been so intermittent, and she doesn't have the big show on mm-hmm. basic cable like she once did. So Oprah's Book Club back is news. That it's Apple TV Plus is also news. The question is, does this add up to be something that's going to be a thing? And I think we, at least initially, are disagreeing. Because you're like, maybe it's not a thing. Give, make, make me the not a thing case. Uh, well, I think it's not a it new right thing. Like Oprah, between the end of her public you know, network show, um, when her book club ended, and then the launch of Oprah's book club 2.0, that was like, a, it felt like a decade. I haven't gotten yeah, those specific dates. But there was a really long time between when she finished doing it on TV and when they relaunched Oprah's book club through the website. And then she started doing the Oprah network and including some of the things there. And she's been on podcasts and there's like, you know, all of that stuff. So that was, I thought that was a huge deal when it happened because it was like, she's been gone for a decade. She's back. Here's a whole new platform, a whole new format for these things. Like we've been getting Oprah picks for the last several years on not a regular schedule, but not like, 
Mm-hmm. They have not been absent. So I think like that we'll continue to see Oprah pick books. They will continue to be a big deal. Just that the material around those is going to be on Apple TV. Um, and some of that's exclusive to Apple TV, but it doesn't say all of it is. So like, mm. so maybe some of the content continues to live on her website and in the Oprah magazine, like who knows, um, or on the own network. I'm not sure. Um, some of it's going to be on Apple TV. So I think like, I think the Oprah book club selection just will continue to be a thing and it will drive sales. It's not as big of a thing as it used to be, probably because we have access to more celebrities with platforms and voices to recommend books. Like, And we've been complaining for the last month or so about all of these PR pieces that are coming out that are like, celebrity book clubs sell books, and then they mm-hmm. don't contain any numbers to indicate that like Reese's book club sells books and Jenna's book club on the day, today show and whoever else, Emma Watson, all of these people have these book clubs. And it was just Oprah before. She was the mm-hmm. only voice and she was like the biggest imaginable voice and there are just other voices in that space now so like i'm glad oprah is going to be continuing the book club i think we'll continue to see it sell books she makes really interesting selections um probably more surprising than a lot of the selections in other places i just don't think that this story of like oh oprah's going to be on apple tv is i think that's the nothing of like okay so it's going to apple tv like good on apple tv for getting oprah Mm -hmm. well it's you got to pay I mean, that's the other new thing is like this is Apple TV Plus, so it's going to be the five ninety nine or four ninety nine a month um, unless you've bought a new iPhone or Mac or whatever. You can get your Dickinson trailer, your Dickinson fix, I guess, mm. where you're, you're paying the same thing. Maybe it's not. I mean, nothing is too strong. Maybe it's just getting us back to the status quo yeah, of Oprah's a thing in the what world. what I was feeling about it. Um, it certainly, I mean... By, by definition, by being behind the paywall, fewer people will see the interviews than the height of Oprah's book club influence in the late 90s, which we were just talking about on one of our other podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, is it even smaller than it was if it's just on the own network? I don't know the answer to that. You know, like, and- is, it, is, is, is Apple TV plus this deal, is it, does it make it a bigger thing or a smaller thing? Maybe that's what I'm trying yeah, to figure you know, out. I is it a bigger or smaller deal? I think it's a sh- just morphing thing. I'm you not know. sure if it's bigger or or smaller, but it's definitely changing shape in that like, you don't have to have access to Apple TV plus to know what the Oprah picks are, Yeah, you know, like everybody's going to know every time she picks a new book, um, that she actually has content with the authors is interesting and does separate it from many of the other celebrity Mm -hmm. book clubs like hello sunshine and the Reese Witherspoon website don't have a whole lot of material at all around the books that she's selected. Like you get two sentences from Reese about why she picked the books and then maybe there's a blog post by the author. Like Mm -hmm. I, but I think that's sufficient. Like most people are just looking for some direction to help them pick the next book that they read. I think only a really small percentage of readers are actually interested in watching an hour long interview with the author of the book. And like, I get paid to do this and you get paid to do this. And we're not even reliably in that small subsection of people who will watch an hour long author interview. Like I got to really love the book to care about that. I couldn't tell you the last time I listened to an hour long interview with an author about their new novel. Yeah. Which is why we may not have podcasts with author interviews about the new novel that are hour long, even though people tell us that's what we should do. It's like, I don't know. (laughs) Tough beat. I guess that makes it a question for Apple. What's in this for Apple TV plus? Are people going to tune in for these things? I mean, maybe Apple TV plus here has overestimated readers interest in watching author interviews, which I wouldn't be surprised by because publicists who get paid to publicize books consistently overestimate, uh, overestimate that interest in, in my experience. Yeah. I mean, interviews, I mean, the, what's, um, the Letterman interview show on Netflix. Like, oh yeah. My those are guest. interesting mm-hmm. and my next guest, but that's because you care about the, the interviewee where when it mm-hmm. comes to books like Coates, even as big as he is, do most people who have iPhones know who Coates is? They're not turning in for a Coates. They might be turning in, tuning in just for Oprah, but that's not my understanding of how these things generally yeah. get traction. And I think that's a really interesting comparison that I love that Letterman Netflix interview series, but it's because it's a like wide ranging interview Mm -hmm. with an interesting person. And sometimes those people do happen to have written books or to have starred in movies or whatever, but it's about their life and their perspective on culture. It's not like, 
it's not gated by have you read this book and do you want to listen to the author talk about this book for an hour? Yeah. So that'll be fascinating to see the Coates. I mean, I was in Powell's yesterday and the Coates book that just came out on Tuesday had the Oprah's book club sticker, but it's, that's not a sticker. You know, it's actually printed as mm-hmm. part of the design of the cover. So they've, we know how this works. They've known for a while. I wonder if all first editions of the water dancer have an Oprah insignia on it or not. It made me wondered about Um, those sorts of things. I got a hardcover in the mail a couple of weeks ago um, that I assume is a first printing and it does not have Oprah. Or or is that just a finished copy for reviewers? I think you've got a collector's item there. I think that's what I'm hearing right here. Maybe. This weird weird one-off. So we're coming down on, I guess, this is just status quo. This isn't extra juice for Oprah's book club's clout. Hmm. Okay. Let's get out on a story that we were very interested to see because we've talked about on the show about nonfiction and what it is and what it isn't when it comes from publishers. You want to take the lead on this one? Sure. Um, So there has been sort of rising coverage over the last couple of years about errors in nonfiction books. And by errors, they mean like factual mistakes slash lies slash misrepresentations, just a variety of things where um, it's come out after a book has been published that there are major factual problems with the Mm. book and people especially from who are familiar with journalism are like well what happened with the fact checking and the answer is that most nonfiction books from most publishing houses don't get fact checked um, at least by someone at the publisher they make it the author's responsibility to turn in a book that the author stands by the factualness of the book. And that gets publishers into some, it gets them into hot water. And then I think that they think it gets them out of hot water because they're like, well, it's not our fault. Like it was the author's job to give us a book that Mm -hmm. was correct. And the author gave us a book that was incorrect. And we just printed what they gave us. Like it's kind of the publishing version of, I was just following orders. Mm -hmm. Um, But there have been like some increasing cases of this around, especially sensitive information published in nonfiction titles. That's leading to greater public demand, like public discussion, and then some demand around fact checking, or at least encouraging publishers to think about how they do this and to consider making changes to it. And the core argument is from publishers that it's not economically sustainable if publishers have to pay for fact checking. Fact checking is rigorous. It takes a lot of time. So that's expensive. And it would upset the business models that publishing currently runs on if they had to factor this in. Now, like, I'm calling BS on that. I believe that publishers believe this is true. But also, like, if you weren't giving out $3 million advances to works of literary fiction that were going to really sell just 150,000 copies, Mm. you'd have money to pay for fact checking for things or like Morgan Intrican, who's the publisher at Grove Atlantic um, says straight up in this piece, I don't know what the alternative is other than to publish fewer books on a different model. Like, well, okay. Like if, if publishers really do believe that they're serving public good by putting books out into the world and one of their goals is to perform a public service by making information available to the reading public, don't they like does their social responsibility stop before verifying that the information in the book is actually correct and does are do they really believe that they're off the hook for distributing false information. Um, like it's, yeah, I, it, I don't know what, like I, I think the answer is publish fewer books on a different model and ensure that the information you're putting out into the world is correct. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, cause like, <laughs> I mean, it's, I guess maybe the argument to make, if I'm a publisher, this is the argument I'm making. We want more of these books. And on, on the whole, the authors we're signing, we understand them to be on the up and up. People make mistakes, whatever. We'd rather have a few rotten apples and barrels than have fewer barrels. I can understand that argument. I also think there you might what you will find if it was a different model, then only the most profitable nonfiction would get published. The thing that the Malcolm Gladwells of the world, which this is one of the mm-hmm. examples was the Malcolm Gladwell, the talking to strangers were citing example about, you know, poets have one of the highest suicide rates, but it was from like a study in 1831. It's like all this weird, I mean, it wasn't factually untrue. That's the other thing. Some of these things aren't about facts. They're about attribution, which is a different situation. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder that 
because I, I, I kind of agree with you at the same time. Like, yeah, publish fewer books at a different model. But then the books that are going to get fact-checked are the self-help and diet and cookbooks and all. Like, the nonfiction, lo- the nonfiction cash cows will be what we, ex- what we get. And we won't get the Virginia Woolf biographies from, um, you know, academics, right? Because it's not worth it to fact-check those. So I'm just, maybe well, maybe you choose your battles. Like, you're going to fact-check some and fact-check the other. Maybe you make that clear. I don't know. But, like, the fact of the matter is that we know what the margins are in publishing. If you're just adding on expense, you're just going to get fewer titles printed, and maybe they'll be marginally more fact-truthful or correct. I just wonder if, the, I'm wondering if that's the, well, yeah, I mean, uh, was that the trade I would actually make? I, I don't think, know if that's the trade I would actually make, frankly. I well, so know. currently we underwrite the existence of, poetry being published by the existence of James Patterson, basically like, you know, like huge commercial successes make it possible for publishers to spend money on things that aren't profitable. And like by that token, then like very commercially successful nonfiction that got fact checked could underwrite the existence of not commercially successful, but also interesting nonfiction. Like I think some of those things could apply or publishers, I think at least need to consider the, the kinds of books where fact checking or the failure to fact check has social implications. Like, but do you need examples though? I mean, these examples are fairly, I mean, the Naomi Wolf one is kind of bad. That yeah, one seems especially, but the yeah. Malcolm Gladwell is like poet suicide rate. I'm okay. I guess you, you get stuff wrong. It's also I just don't know. Just like just in the sure. culture right now to care about fact checking and about people making statements that aren't true and being called out on it or not um, because of what's happening in politics, I think. And we have it. I think we're developing more of a sensitivity to how powerful disinformation hmm. is or, or how damaging having wrong information out there in the world is. And it is like a cognitive bias that if we hear something and then later on we're told that that thing is wrong and here's the actual truth, um, our brains are resistant to adapting to the new information. Like part of us continues to believe that first thing that we were taught. And so this like after the fact correcting of things is not good from the public. But even fact checking, like even the New York times and New Yorker that are regularly fact checked Mm -hmm. or sometimes are, even though we get these situations like, Oh, by the way, we weren't checking that particular person's work and they made up sources. Like I just, it's like, there's, there's a point of diminishing returns. I think Morgan Etrigan's point is like kind of not obtuse, but it's like kind of obvious. But I think that the other point is like, what would the real, what would the real cost be to fact check some? And Mm -hmm. is fact checking some worse than not fact checking any of them? Because then you don't know, like, is there going to be some kind of stickers like this one's fact check, this one's not? It's kind of a snar- starbelly sneeches point. I, it's it's kind of, actually it's kind of like what we talked about with book coverage at the beginning, like to do it where you paid per hour read, mm-hmm. where you checked every fact in every nonfiction book that came out, would fundamentally alter what's available. Well, and so then maybe the and is that good or not? I don't know the. I guess that's what I was like. Is yeah. that would I make? I'm trying to think like would I make the trade where I'd have. Eight percent or forty percent of available nonfiction titles, but I knew they had been fact checked. Not that they were true, because mm-hmm. that's a whole different thing. Because people make mistakes and whatever. I'm just not sure. Maybe I like. Maybe it's a status quo situation. Well, where I, I prefer think the status the, quo. Maybe like I'm glad that the New York Times published this piece about this. I'm glad this yes, is being talked too, about. And definitely. so maybe the solution here, like if publishing can't change their model, and if we, if we are in a star-bellied Sneetches situation, and I can see that angle on it. Like I don't think every nonfiction book ever needs to be fact-checked, but who decides which ones have the potential to like upset social norms yeah. if they have mistakes in them? I don't know. Maybe the best thing we can do are the first good thing we can do is educate readers like yes, educate the reading totally public agree with that, that yes. you should not trust the nonfiction books you pick up to be 100% factually accurate like mm-hmm. maybe i don't know it's some sort of disclaimer <laughs> in well the, you maybe have to treat it like the internet right like to some degree like you go into it saying you look at it skeptically you trust but verify or and you know that's that just it's, not the way that people are used to approaching books and literature but, it's, with, but that's a weird thing though isn't it Rebecca, it is weird. It's never been fact checked. It, it why did we get this idea? They were. Why did we get this idea that they were fact checked? I wonder where like, that came from. I think there's just the assumption that, like, what comes out in a book 
is true, um, or like if a researcher has done research that the thing that they're publishing is correct yeah. to their research and that a publisher is responsible for that. And this is so tangly and I think it makes people so angry because it's not just that something untrue got published. It's the like passing of the buck about who's responsible for the mistake and if the mistake matters or not and sort of all that stuff. But that yeah. it's, I think it's very good that like the New York Times is covering this, that hopefully other publications that have you know large readerships of people who are interested in books address this this fact that the nonfiction books you pick up cannot be relied upon just at like carte blanche to be mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever that misnomer came from, it's a long time for people to understand that even talking to strangers is not fact-checked. Even, like, Malcolm Gladwell in The New Yorker is a different thing than Malcolm Gladwell in Talking to Strangers, weirdly. And that feels like a a cognitive dissonance sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, that's really strange. But I think a a banner like The New York Times actually is protected. Its brand is built on that, Mm -hmm. like The New York Times. And so when you get, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, that the the Shattered Glass movie, he just made up stuff. That's much more damaging, right? Doesn't matter, Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. The movie's called Shattered Glass. Um, But for publishers, one of the... This might work for them in one degree because people don't know what the publisher of Talking to Strangers is because Malcolm Gladwell's the brand. Right. So any damage done because he's made a mistake is done to Naomi Wolf or Gladwell or Abramson, not to the underlying imprint because no one knows what it is anyway. Like it's right. a security by obscurity. So I wonder that, I that's part of the that, idea like, too. But we go tell your friends and family when you yes. go home for Christmas or Thanksgiving this year, fix their Wi-Fi and say, hey, dad, remember, <laughs> nonfiction is in fact checked. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that's like the thing that really bugs me about this, in addition to just like wrong things being out in the world, is that publishers want both sides, that they want the credit for like doing the work of making ideas and information accessible, but they don't want to be held responsible for when that goes wrong. I think, yeah, I guess the answer maybe we say we want from a publisher that's asked about this, like, here's the deal. We can either have a whole bunch of books on nonfiction that aren't fact-checked, or we can have a whole bunch fewer that are. Right. We think it's better, like make a positive argument. We think it's better to publish as many quality books as we can with authors we like about topics we think are interesting and do what we can to get the information out there. Let the market decide whether the book is good or bad. But don't, yeah, the cake and eat it too thing is tough. Mm-hmm. Like we're, 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 you know, you're not a journalistic body. Don't pretend to be one. Right. Don't pretend to be one. Yeah. That's okay. I think that's a good place to land. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening this week. Um, next up, you're going to hear us talk about Where the Crawdads Sing coming out uh, next this week as you're listening to this. It is an episode <laughs> in which we talked about Where the Crawdads Sing. We have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, podcast at com for feedback. Go to bookriot.com slash listen to show notes for this and all back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast. Rebecca, I'll talk to you probably in like six minutes about something else. I don't know. Something <laughs> have like a that. good one. All right. Cheers. Cheers.